Okay, so welcome to our fourth day of our um, commemoration or celebration, something of shelter in place for one year. And we're continuing on with um, uh, looking at some Buddhist teachings that really speak to the amazing time that we've been through. And so uh, as before, we'll have a a wisdom understanding and a heart quality paired together today as we have the other days. But um, we'll begin with meditation to help us uh, settle in. So let's sit for you know, 15 minutes or so. So finding a posture that's comfortable for meditation, one where you'll be able to sit for, for that time and just coming into an internal awareness of the body sitting. We may have had our mind outward talking with people or looking at the screen and thinking about a million different things. So just bringing the attention inward and feeling the body sitting. Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. And on the exhale, allowing the body to soften, relax a bit more. Just noticing if there are any obvious places of tension that could be released. Maybe softening the eyes and the eye sockets, the jaw, around the mouth. Releasing the neck so the head feels like it's floating on the body. Letting the shoulders soften, releasing the shoulder joints so the shoulder blades can slide down the back. And down into the belly area, letting the belly soften from any habitual tension that's being held there. Down into the hip joints and the groin muscles, sinking a little farther into the seat where we're sitting. And releasing the arms and the legs from any bracing or tension. 
So an overall sense of inviting ease through the body. Connecting with the simple sensations of the breath, coming in, going out. Not the idea of the breath, but the actual simple sensations like the touch of the air on the nostrils or the upper lip. coolness of the air entering the nasal passages. Any sense of tingling or motion as the air moves through the throat and the chest. Sense of tension on the in-breath. And then the relaxation on the out-breath. These things that go on all the time, but we don't necessarily notice. Aiming to have a simple, kind awareness of everything that's arising and passing, whether it's body sensations or thoughts or emotions. A sense of inclusiveness of our experience.
when the mind wanders away or gets caught up in a thought trail, it's no problem. Just immediately returning with a smile to the rest of our experience, opening again to the flow of body and mind. It's just a habit to think about things. And in the last few minutes of this meditation, you might just consider that all these sensations and thoughts that are coming and going, consider if any of them could really be called you. Or are they just sensations that arise and pass, either physical sensations or mental movements, and the knowing of them. It's just a bundle of these three basic things, body, mind, and awareness. Resting with the sense that these are just natural phenomena rolling on.
feeling the ease and relief of just resting in nature. No need to make up a me or a story or a what I have to do. Just nature. Okay, so I see maybe another person has come in. Thank you and welcome to uh, everyone who's here. So yesterday we talked about um, views and perceptions and in particular, the idea that they may not be accurate. Um, you know, there are things that are conditioned and definitely when they're not noticed, they tend to be confining or constraining in certain ways. Um, so it's helpful, as we ended with yesterday, to develop the inclusiveness of metta practice, which is uh, a heart that has no barriers. And that is something that reduces the kind of clenching and narrowing effect of our views um, when we get stuck in them. So that was yesterday's combination. Uh, today, I want to go on to talk a bit about... Um, topic that is sometimes hard to understand, topic of not self and also of emptiness. So to get into it, um, we'll start with the, some key distortions of mind, as they're called, that the Buddha talked about, because it's related to the way our, our views distort things. So these are sort of mis mistakes of perception, if you will, uh, that are particularly damaging to make if our aim is the end of suffering. There are certain kinds of distortions of perception that will um, hinder that, that aim, let's say it that way. So we tend to uh, mistake what is impermanent for what is permanent. That's a big one is that we think things are permanent when they're not. We also tend to mistake what is suffering for what is happiness. So we think things that are, um, actually suffering, we think that they're happiness. And similarly, third distortion is that we tend to mistake what is not self for a self. And we tend to impute self onto things that are not really a self. So we've um, talked in this week so far, we've talked quite a bit about impermanence because that's um, something we all experienced when we went into this pandemic and many things in our lives turned out to be impermanent and, and changing that we weren't necessarily expecting to be such. So I wanna focus more than today on the third one of these, this sense of not self, this issue of not self and the related issue of emptiness of phenomena, um, words that can sound weird or scary or confusing sometimes, or maybe not, maybe you're delighted by these things. Um, we'll see. So um, one of the key Buddhist 
practices or ideas that that's important is to retrain our perception. That can is one way that you can view the Buddhist path. So it can help to consciously notice these three qualities that we tend to mistake. We make mistakes about permanence, about suffering, and about self. Um, so we want to focus on the three qualities that we tend to miss, namely impermanence, dukkha, and uh, the fact that nothing can really constitute a stable or definable self. So let's talk about what that really means. You know, what the, the issue with the self is that we're so vague about it. We're so vague. Everybody would say, of course, I have a self. I can use the words I, me, mine with no problem. And we're all grammatically competent in that way. I don't have any doubts about your ability to do that. But if you were pressed, I would say that you could not actually find this self that is so clear in our, that we think is so clear. So for example, sometimes we refer to our body as our self. Like if we say, I am tall. Well, I is referring to my body. Your body is tall, right? That's what you mean. You don't mean your thoughts are tall. That doesn't make sense. So it's your body that you're talking about. My body is tall. Sometimes, though, um, we use personal pronouns for our feelings. So like, I am happy. I'm happy. So that means I am my emotion. I'm uh, Somehow my emotions are standing in for the self or sometimes our thoughts. I think this is what we should do next. Well, who's the I? Well, it's somebody who's thinking something, who has an, a view or an opinion about what should be done next. That's the, the self in that case, that's the I. Or sometimes we even use I to refer, if we're meditators, we refer to our awareness. So we would say, I was aware of my breath. So I'm the one who was aware, I'm the knowing. Part. And then there's a slipped in there, my breath. So I own the breath. It's my breath. Um, we have a little ownership of part of the body. An aspect of physical experience is the breath. So how is that consistent with what I said earlier? If I say I am tall, I'm the body. But if I say my breath, I'm somebody different from the body who owns some part of it. Can you be both of those things at once? Can you be the body and the owner of the body at the same time? Something that's, so it's not exactly clear. We're not very clear about that. Um, so this is okay. Um, these are, you start to get the sense of Ludwig Wittgenstein's words that the self is nothing but a shadow cast by grammar. It's worth pondering. So if you look carefully, you will find that words like I, me, and mine do not refer to any entity that is unified or constant or controllable for that matter. So they shift around these qualities. They shift around. Sometimes it means this, sometimes it means that. Uh, it's, and it, certainly they shift around among, among things that we don't have complete control over. Um, you know. We don't have any really much control over our body, much less than we think. Yes, we can feed it and bathe it and walk and talk and things like that. But did you decide what you look like? Can you control your age, your height, maybe your weight a little bit, but that's largely determined by genetics, by environment, 
uh, things that were way out of our control. So, you know, things like I, me, mine are useful. They're, they're functional reference in our speech. They're functional uh, things to help us distinguish what's, what's what, <laughs> but they don't actually refer to a single definable referent. And even if one of those things that we say about ourself, like I am happy, is true for a little while, it will change. It will change sometime later, I won't be happy. Um, so the Buddha states this very clearly. He says, whatever be the phenomenon through which they think of seeking their self identity, it turns out to be transitory. It becomes false for what lasts for a moment is deceptive. The state that is not deceptive is Nibbana. So he gives us an alternative at least, but essentially he says, whatever you would think of as your self identity, it's gonna change. So there isn't really anything there. Um, so this isn't sort of an analytical method. There's no there there, there's no essence there. Um, and you can say, well, you know, it's like the sum total of all of those things. Okay, but that changes. So that still doesn't refer to anything actually definable. Um, these statements are quite vague. Um, so this is also, this sense that there isn't really an essence there um, is also called emptiness. That's all the word emptiness refers to in Buddhist teachings. People think of this as a complex, deep term, and it is, by the way, to really understand it. But it just means there's no essence. It isn't a blah, nothing, blank slate. There's plenty of, I see plenty of experience happening. Um, that hasn't gone away, but it's empty of essence. So I'm going to read a little quote that was um, written by uh, Gil Fransdahl and Guy and Sally Armstrong. The concept of emptiness in Buddhism refers to insights important to the realization of freedom. In the broadest sense, it is the understanding that all things are empty of any permanent essence or inherent substance. In relation to our own life, it is the insight that within human experience, there is no abiding or fixed core that could be called a self. In relation to the phenomena of our experience, it is the insight that all sense phenomena have no solidity, but rather are insubstantial and fleeting. These two insights together reveal that there is nothing that it makes sense to cling to. That's where the freedom comes in. There isn't even anything to cling to. <laughs> you can't cling. You can't cling because there's nothing to cling to, even though we try. Um, so realizing this intellectually, I think it might be easy enough if you've had some experience with Buddhist teachings. Maybe it isn't, but you know, I've talked you through a pretty a sort of an analytical intellectual argument about all this stuff and you can follow it along and say, oh yes, that's right. Um, but intellectual understanding actually is not uh, sufficient for freedom. It's not gonna reduce, it's not gonna end your suffering. So in our practice, we have to investigate more deeply and experientially how the self is created. We have to see it coming into being and going out of existence in order to uh, really understand what emptiness is. So this is done when the mind has some meditative steadiness. It's actually pretty difficult to do just with an ordinary thinking mind. Otherwise, a lot of people would have already done it. <laughs> but this is not something that a lot of people have done. It's not an easy insight. 
So you need meditation, you need meditative steadiness, but we can do some things. We can start to observe, for example, the story of me that continually arises. We spend a lot of time on the story of me, what I like, what I don't like, what I need, don't need, what I need to do, what somebody thinks of me, what I ought to do. It's all, it's quite exhausting, all of that, but that's a lot of what runs through our head. I want to read a quote also from this um, from a book about emptiness. So, as we look, we find that all the beguiling narratives are basically about me. What I like, what I don't like, what I want, what I fear, what I hate, what I believe, what I'm like. These I thoughts are frequent and compelling. Just try giving them up for two minutes. That might be a good exercise to do. Try giving up all those thoughts for two minutes. Doesn't sound that hard, but see how it is. So when we try that, we sense that they are being thrown up by some strong motive force like a turbocharged engine. What is behind all this power? It is the belief in a story, in the story of I, me, mine, that we tell ourselves over and over. We do this to convince ourselves that we are real in the way we imagine ourselves to be. But this self is a fiction. There isn't actually an entity that corresponds to this fabrication. He goes on to say, this is not a pleasurable or satisfying habit, which I think we have to discover for ourselves. And of course, if you're not given an alternative, um, that's also not very helpful. So there are uh, alternatives. So um, as we, if we do this exercise of kind of repeatedly observing the story coming up and our belief in it and our working on it and our tweaking little bits of it to make it fit together better, etc., we will sometimes begin to have moments where we can let go of this story, um, where we see directly, not intellectually, that there is not actually a me. Directly means you can feel it or you actually see the self come into being or you see it you see its story vanish and you feel the space that's gone when it's vanished. So we start to have experiences like that and you'll have to have a lot of them. <laughs> but when you start to have some of those, uh, we start to get some direct tastes of not self and we'll find that it has a lightness to it. There's actually a great joy in um, realizing, starting to see through this continual fabrication that we're doing. So that's today's heart quality, is joy. Joy goes with not self. They, they pair together. So I think about the monk, um, Minya Rinpoche. Uh, he's a Tibetan teacher. Some of you may have heard some of his teachings. Um, very, very brilliant, um, fairly young still monk. But he, um, he was uh, you know, brought up to be a teacher. He was trained and he was running all these monasteries. And, but he got the idea that he wanted to go on retreat. You know, poor busy person like that never gets to go on retreat actually. So he actually snuck out of his monastery one evening and um, just disappeared into the Indian world, you know, the Indian landscape, if you will. Um, and he went on a four-year wandering retreat where he just lived on the streets. He used to be, you know, revered, fed the best food, anything he wanted. There were servants everywhere as he was this famous teacher. And he lived as a street person for four years, um, gave all that up. 
And he said it was not easy at the beginning. Um, he was scared about living on the street. He didn't know how to do that. Um, and he even had an encounter with food poisoning that nearly killed him. And he was very fortunate to have his life saved. So he had some interesting insights around death. And then he, um, when he had sort of given up all of that, he found this tremendous freedom. And he said for, for years, he just wandered being so happy and discovering that there is no essence to who he thought he was, that whole story of it. Um, and that, you know, we're not all gonna do this necessarily in the same scale, but, you know, he just, um, there are some pictures of him from that time. You know, monks usually have a shaved head. He has long dreadlocks <laughs> and he's just laughing. Um, he looked very happy. So when he came back, um, he uh, wrote a book about his experiences, about letting go of some of these deep layers of clinging to himself. And he wanted to title his book, Dying Every Day, because he felt like every day he was letting go of his self. Every day he was letting go of his life and just being free to in his existence. But the publishers thought that wouldn't sell very well. So they renamed the book, um, In Love With The World, <laughs> Dying Every Day or In Love With The World. Um, in the end, he thought that was okay. He thought maybe they were the same thing. <laughs> so there you go. You can reflect on that one too. So he discovered this lightness and freedom in ways that he could never have anticipated. But I think his, you know, his practice, which is of course very, very deep to be able to do that. Um, but still, I think it is maybe an inspiration for us and our ordinary lives to consider if we could let go of, um, some of the ways that who we think we are and the things we need, think we need to do and all of that. So have you noticed that great spiritual beings tend to be pretty happy and carefree? And why is that? Is it because they're throngs of followers who take care of their every need? No, it's because they've seen through all of that. It's because they've seen through all of that. That's the real happiness and joy. So we can relax, as one teacher said, no self, no problem. Yeah, so no self, no problem. That's a good thing to remember. So to bring us back to earth, I have this um, poem uh, by a uh, fellow meditator called Losing It. It was a tiny percentage I knew, but still there was some French royalty somewhere in my blood. I would spend hours imagining myself in my proper place in a long pink dress and a thin gold crown in a castle on a green hillside, doing needlepoint, no doubt, and nibbling bonbons. And so when I again asked my mother to tell me about that part of our heritage, she told me, it's so little blood and you've had so many skinned knees, I'm pretty sure you've bled it all out by now. And I was instantly less grandiose. That was perhaps the first identity that I was aware of losing. But soon after that, I was no longer blonde. And soon after that, I no longer lived in Wisconsin. And soon after that, I was no longer a scout. Everything I thought I knew about myself didn't last. Ah, the litany of losses. Those notions of who we are, how they shed, they spill, they slip off. As they're lost, we usually rush to replace them. I became worker, lover, parent, friend. We wear them so close, these identities, that we no longer see them as separate. We think they're who we are. 
but what if we skinned not just our knees, but our thoughts and let those roles escape? Who would be left to walk through the field this evening to see the double rainbow stretched across the east? So I hope you will lose some of your identities and not replace them too fast. These are my thoughts for today, but um, I would be welcome, would welcome any questions or objections, comments. You're all stunned into silence. <laughs> Would you prefer to do breakout rooms? We could do those. Oh, Kirsten has to leave, that's fine. G has a question. Actually, it's just, um, I appreciate you uh, sharing the, some teachings on emptiness and not self because they, they're they not easy teachings. And as you said, I think intellectually we can get some of that, but what does it mean? How do we do it? Um, you know, then who am I? <laughs> What's left? Um, so yeah, they're not easy teachings. We don't hear them very often. And so I always appreciate any time that the, these teachings are offered um, it's, it's another opportunity to, to kind of let it wash over and maybe something happens. Yeah. So, so thank you. Yeah, that's well said. It's, these are teachings that are not easy for us to absorb or take in maybe intellectually, but yeah, it's, it takes repeated exposure to these, um, kinds of teachings and, you know, it won't happen overnight and it's, uh, in my understanding, a fairly gentle process because it's fairly gradual uh, is to, to release the self and continue developing ourselves in that way. Probably the easiest practice is the one I pointed to in, in the talk of trying to see, um, you know, the one that we can do most often is just trying to see when the self is there. Notice when a thought has I in it. Notice when um, we're caught up in something and look for a way we might be holding on to a story about ourselves or something. And, um, and just notice that, notice that repeatedly. Everyone here has already done some meditation for a while. And so um, we can trust that our mindfulness can be, it's one more thing we can notice in mindfulness, the self and how it comes about. And we can trust that um, kind of the process will get integrated into our mindfulness and meditation practice. The teacher Andrea Fella um, points out that you know the two kind of major insights that Buddhist teachers point people toward are impermanence and not self. I mean, there's dukkha also, but most people know that one, <laughs> so we have to be pointed toward the impermanence and not self. And the, that there's a funny reversal that goes on where impermanence um, people feel like they get right away, and usually they feel okay about it, like oh yeah, you know I like change, I like new things. 
Um, I'm interested in, you know, how things can change in my life. I want to improve myself. That's a change. So it, that one feels kind of comfortable, but the direct visceral contact with impermanence is actually usually disturbing to people because uh, there are experiences in meditation, for example, where it can feel like your body turns to sand and drains away. And that can be a little scary. So, and the feeling, you know, when we see um, various experiences coming and going, that can feel disturbing, feel like the ground is being pulled out. So, but the reversal, and here's the good news, is that the not self teaching is the opposite. So a lot of people object to it. They, they are worried about it. They're afraid of losing themselves. What will I be? Who am I? What's going to be left? Like G said. And so there's this initial uh, aversion to this um, to this insight. But the visceral experience of non self is incredibly beautiful. <laughs> and when people finally have it, they're like, oh. This is such a relief. This is so joyful. This is so amazing. This is so expansive. So it's um, it's just curious. So we shouldn't trust our initial impressions, maybe of these insights where <laughs> these perceptions were being pointed toward, because really what we want is to be relieved of the self. I mean, why are you seeking? Why are you doing religious seeking of any kind? Spiritual seeking, even self improvement. Uh, to some degree, it's like we're sick of ourselves. We're tired of this thing, this body, this struggle, this story. Um, if somebody could just relieve you of all of that, wouldn't it be nice? So a lot of religion is about how do we deal with the fact that we feel like we're a separate being struggling in a somewhat hostile world, dealing with other people who are difficult. That's dukkha. And that's the story of me, of myself. And so we're looking for relief from that in some way. And there are practices, fortunately, that can bring that about. Heavy. So I think this is probably not self, but maybe it's the closest I've gotten. <laughs> and I'm just curious what you think of this. Like, to me, like, you know, I've definitely had these, you know, huge reliefs from moments of relief from everything from realizing like, that's just like, you know, that's a feeling or that's a belief or that's mm -hmm. a, you know, yeah. and like, then it's like, my awareness gets very big. And that particular thing kind of gets just like, it's, I'm no longer identifying with it. Right. Right. Um, but I do. So maybe that is some of it, like a little touching into that what you're talking about yeah um and also just things like realizing you know in going from i'm anxious and like this sort of like where it goes up to my edges and then realizing like actually like there's a tension in my stomach <laughs> like this is not it's a similar kind of thing it's not a it's not a sort of um like in that case probably you could measure it in some way like but, and the other things, I don't know how you would measure, you know, a particular thought or a particular feeling. But one thing that I feel like has brought, brought me, so all of those things are relief, like when that happens and when sort of my awareness gets much bigger than the very the particular thing. But one thing that has always brought me comfort and I wonder, you're making me wonder whether it's misguided, is like that I am something that like, and what I am is like, the, and, and everybody is in the sense that like, there's like some kind of light inside of everybody like that, like that, that people can kind of be reduced to this sort of 
I don't want to say a spark. It's more like a glow. And it's like just, uh, I mean, for me, this has brought me great um, comfort and joy and peace. Um, and I wonder if that's, mis you're making me think maybe this is misguided, even though it's been very helpful to me, given where I am right now or my journey so far. Do you see that light in everyone, even yeah. people that are challenging? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that and sounds very like other, It's sometimes somebody, but even when it's eclipsed, it's like, I know it's, I do see it in everybody actually. And even people who, you know, former presidents. And I mean, it's like, I see like this, this is not the basic person, like this, this craziness that this per or, or not evil, but like ugh, that this person is spewing. That's not who this person is. It's all kinds of damage that the person is doing. But, mm -hmm. and it's coming from, yeah, no, I do see it in everybody actually. Yeah, I think that sounds, sounds very skillful. You know, that's related to the, well, it's, it's an important, it's a useful way to view people, let's say it that way. And, you know, saying that the self doesn't exist doesn't mean that there isn't anything there. There's definitely um, something, the, the aggregates uh, as, you know, that technical term, the, you know, the body and the mind exist. Um, they're a continual flow. That doesn't refer to any one thing, but for sure, um, there's that spark of life. There's a difference in seeing someone's eyes when they're alive than when they're a corpse. There's definitely something there. And we can envision that to be something beautiful if we want. And that is uplifting and helps a lot in our navigation of life. So this sounds um, useful to me. And yeah. I don't think it's misguided. Okay. <laughs> Sylvia, did I see your hand drifting up? No. Okay. Okay. Well, we're at um, we're at the end of today's session, but we'll have um, one more tomorrow. And um, and I hope you have a wonderful day between now and then. Take care. Bye bye. Oh, thank you, Kim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.